Welcome to Deepen with Pastor Joby Martin. The Church of 1122 is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're praying this message helps you deepen your relationship with Him. Now let's dive in. All right, week eight of Anything is Possible. Welcome back to the Deepen podcast. Uh, We are talking this week. I truly feel like I say this every week, but this really is like my favorite. And... But I was thinking about how I was going to say that and how I think I do say that almost every week. But then I was thinking about how it's a high compliment to the two of you because it means that the book just keeps getting better, which that's what you want in a good book. You don't want to peak right at the beginning of the book and then everyone's just bored the rest of the book. So you still have me here um, on week eight. And we are talking about um, the woman with issue of blood, which that's what it's called. Most often, we were talking about this right before we pressed record. Most often in Bible translations, this miracle is called the woman with the issue of blood. In the book, you call it the bleeding woman. Can we talk about the title of the chapter and how it's referred to in the Bible? And I know you have some thoughts on it. Yeah, I guess it's just human nature to want to identify people by their pain and problems or, I mean like last week, they're at Simon the leper's house, but he's not a leper anymore, right? Or the woman caught in adultery. Why why not the forgiven woman, Mm. the uncondemned woman? Because that is her current state. Aren't you glad that God doesn't refer to us, be like, yep, there's the guy with the issue of anger, and there's the girl (laughs) with the issue of nagging, and there's the guy with the issue of uncontrollable debt. You know, whatever, man. But but we are in Christ more than conquerors, so... And it's crazy. You look at any commentary, or if you want to look up stuff about this woman, that is how she is referred to. It's extra ironic, I feel like, for her, because, spoiler alert, she ends up getting called daughter by Jesus, and really this whole miracle is kind of rooted in identity. And so it's kind of extra ironic for her, because the whole point of it is that she gets called daughter, and he gives her this name. And uh, But yet, yeah, we title it Woman with Issue of Blood. They don't want to give any spoilers, I guess. Okay, before we get to her, this chapter again opens talking about desperation, which I feel like is a bit of a recurring theme in both Anything is Possible, but also the miracles that we've been looking at. It seems like miracles come on the heels of desperation. Do you see that as a theme? I do. I, um, You know, that's one of the great things about a book is you could come back to this at different seasons in your life, and I think it would just hit you completely differently. Um, It reminds me of a J.I. Packer quote where he says, and still he seeks the fellowship of his people, Mm -hmm. and he sends both joy and sorrow to detach their hands from the things of this world Mm -hmm. to grab onto him. Yeah, wow. Um, Okay, so before we get to the miracle, in the book you— you take us back to Malachi and trace the the biblical narrative between Malachi up until this encounter of Jesus and this woman. Um, why is it so important to give this miracle so much context? I think if you don't know Malachi, if you don't know this woman's faith in the word of God, she doesn't just have faith in faith. This isn't like just some kind of faith healer, and she's hoping this works. That's not what's going on. You'll completely miss, like, the the substance of the faith that this woman has. I mean, 
Faith is the, the evidence of things unseen. It's not just a fuzzy, warm feeling. And the, and the fact that she grasped onto the hem of the garment, like what is that about? It seems like if you didn't know the... If you didn't know the Old Testament, which is why you can never detach from the Old Testament, that Jesus in the New Covenant is just the the yes and the I am and the promises and prophecies fulfilled in the Old Covenant. And the whole thing is useful. And the whole thing is inspired by God. And, And Jesus rises up out of our understanding of the of the Old Testament. So this woman knows this messianic prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, which really starts with the warning that the day of judgment is coming. But it ends, I mean, it's the last thing that God in his word is going to say before Jesus, the Messiah, shows up on the scene. Think about the last thing you say to your kids, like, yours aren't old enough yet, but when they're getting out of the car or going to the friend's house, you're like, listen listen to me. And you give them like the last, like, brush your teeth and don't (laughs) forget your stuff. Whatever the thing is that you think is most important. So the last thing that they that the God wants his people to hear is that one is coming in the spirit of Elijah. So heads up. When when somebody in the spirit of Elijah shows up, then the serpent crushers right on his heels. Mm-hmm. And the son of righteousness is coming with healing in his wings. Mm-hmm. And she believes that. She knows this. We get into it all in the book about the Jewish tradition of wearing the prayer shawl. The edge of that prayer shawl is called the kanaf. Um, it could also be translated as wing or edge. Jesus talks about it when he on his on his way into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. <clears throat> he looks over the wall of Jerusalem and he's like, oh, like a like a hen that would gather together her chicks under their wings. It's that kind of protection. Um, when Jesus says, when you pray. Don't be like the hypocrites that stand on the street corner and put it on blast for everybody, but go into your prayer closet. What that means is you would take your prayer shawl and and you would, it, it looks kind of like a cape, and you'd wrap your arms kind of around your head like this in that little mm. closet. It's just because you it's between you and the Lord. You don't have to show off. It's not like an actual room like where your skates and stuff are, you know, <laughs> which a lot of people, a lot of Christians, when they design a house, they're like, that's my prayer closet. I'm like, that's not what it means, but that's okay. Um and so this woman is okay. So he's come. He's in Capernaum. It's kind of headquarters for most of his Galilean ministry. He's done a bunch of miracles, and she's thinking, "Uh oh, I think that's him. Mm-hmm. I think what Malachi said is true, and I think it is him. It's <laughs> happening in my presence." Mm-hmm. She digs through the crowd. And she's just trying to do what Malachi says. She's just trying to do what the Word of God says. And there's a miracle on the other step, other side of that faith in the Word of God. And so she grabs the, the kanaf. And so if you don't know that, it just seems like, it seems like super rando. Like mm. Jesus is just accidentally healing random people that grab onto his shoelaces. No, 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 no. This is very, very... Specific, her faith is being rewarded because she has planted her future mm. on the trustworthiness of the word of God. So that that's why it matters. Yeah, you talk a bit about the season of waiting between Malachi and then when 
the New Testament begins. And it's about 400 years of silence, 400 years of waiting, which I think about like my own seasons of waiting. And then I think about this. This is like multiple generations of like moms telling their kids, like you have to continue waiting and praying and expecting. And then they have to tell their kids. Um, And so just what does this tell us about seasons of waiting and and God's use of these seasons of waiting? Well, they're not a waste of time uh, unless you waste time. But God's, God's timing is not our timing, man. He's never in a hurry. I think about this often. Why did he take six days to create all that he is? He could have done it in one second. But for whatever reason, I guess when you're a timeless God, you just, you know, for all reasons that are good and right, he does it on his own time. But if you look at so many of the things that happen in the waiting, like David probably feels like he's being punished as a shepherd boy, and little does he know that God is preparing him to be not only a giant slayer but a king. That's right. Moses probably feels like, well, this sucks. I'm working for my father-in-law, and I've screwed up my whole life. And little does he know that God is preparing him to be a deliverer. Mm. So oftentimes what we see as punishment is oftentimes a time of preparation that God Mm. uses in our lives if we will be obedient and look out for this. And and then also, I mean, there's so much in the fact that in this miracle, it's like a miracle sandwich, right? Because it's Jairus' daughter and, and this woman. Um, there's a 12-year-old kid and a woman with the issue of bleeding for 12 years. Mm. There's no doubt those things happen at the same time. Right. Um, that that Jairus is a, a really well-known person, and we know his name. He's a person of prominence, and she's a nobody. Uh, he's a part of the synagogue, which means his life is defined by community, and her life is defined by isolation. All of these things have everything to do with one another. Right. And and Jesus is going to show up in both of their lives. How about you, Charles? Anything you could comment on seasons of waiting? Well, we see this too in the life of Joseph. Oh, yeah. Um, as you were talking, he came to mind, and I just, I'm always amazed that God's deliverer, the deliverer for the nation of Israel, is stuck in prison and changed. But the psalmist actually says, I put Joseph in bronze fetters. So there's a picture of Joseph sitting in prison, bronze locks, whatever, around his ankles. And he knows, the Lord's already told him, you are my deliverer, I'll use you. And yet he's stuck there, falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, all of that. And yet somehow that was the Lord's intention. And it probably made a whole heck of a lot of sense when finally Joseph peers through the curtains and sees his brother's. And is and what he doesn't feel is wrath and vengeance and anger, but something happened in that time, and he weeps. And so, you know, the Lord's timing is not our timing. That is a fact. But he's never late. He's also never early. Uh, there's a you have a quote in your book on page one seventy six. It says, "He hears you. Never confuse your perceived lack of cooperation on God's part for God's absence," which. There's a lot in that statement. And what does that mean for the person today who feels like they don't feel like God hears them and that they've been in a season of waiting? Sometimes God says yes, sometimes no, sometimes not now. And uh, he's good no matter what his answer is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's totally comical, but Garth Brooks' song, one of God's greatest gifts is unanswered prayers. I mean, if you dig into it a little bit, you there's probably a long list of things you could say, 
God, thank you so much for not letting me get into that school mm, or get right. that job or take me to that city or whatever. Because if I I would have gotten my way, then I wouldn't get your way, and your way has been better. That's right. And it's always easier to see over the rear view, you know, like over your shoulder, than it is out of the windshield. But that's why we got to trust Him. That's why the testimony of people it's all throughout the Scripture too, so that when we're not sure. Uh, what God holds in store for us, we know that he's good. We know that he loves us and we know that he can be trusted. Yeah. So Charles, we got to hear you teach on this story in Israel and it was an incredibly impactful teaching in my life. So can you give your storyteller version of, which I was realizing when I was preparing for this episode that we're in the presence of two very talented storytellers. You both tell stories very differently. And, but just when I was thinking about it, I'm like, this is ironic. I'm asking one storyteller to tell the story when I'm sitting across two people who are two of the best storytellers of our time. Um, but will you just tell the story of this woman and give, paint a picture for us of what this experience was like for her, this miracle? It occurs on the in Capernaum, which is uh, or Copper Nahum. We don't know who Nahum was, but it's the house of Nahum. It's the town named after him, uh, which also became the epicenter of Jesus' ministry. I, I can't remember. It's like thirty something of his thirty-eight miracles occur within eyesight, basically of Capernaum. But you can almost stand on the Sea of Galilee and stretch your arms and say eighty-five percent of the ministry that we read about that Jesus conducts or performs occurs like between my arms. So in Capernaum, it's a Peter's mother-in-law lives there. We know that Um, the disciples evidently move there at some point or that becomes their headquarters. There's a synagogue there. One of the guys in charge of it is Jairus. And on this particular day, we know from the story, the narrative that Jesus has just delivered, there's a lot happening in a very short period of time, but he's just delivered the demoniac in the, in the Gadarenes, which is literally right across the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum. So if you're standing on the shore in Capernaum, you can look that way and you can see where the demoniac would have lived, the tombs, the, the whole thing. So you, you can see it. You could have seen the boat coming, them rowing. You could have seen Jesus get out of the boat. Also, it's probably possible that word spread and preceded him. So when he lands on the beach, the disciples' heads are probably spinning. They don't have a box in which to put him in the miracle-making power they are currently witnessing. And the, the, the crowds are growing exponentially. Crowds are a thing. Like, he can't travel without one. And it's, it's also hard to get to him because of that. He lands on the beach, and as soon as he sees him, Jerus comes running out of wherever he comes running, and he makes his way to Jesus. And people probably would have parted the way for Jairus because he's somebody of stature. And so he gets to Jesus. He says, come quick, my daughter's dying. Jesus says, well, lead me to her. And the thing that I feel like the Lord, I don't know this, but I tend to believe. Jesus knows who this woman is. He knows what she has suffered. He knows what she has spent. He knows physically what she is capable of and not capable of. He knows how fast she can walk. Mm -hmm. He knows how thick the diaper needs to be to soak up the issue. Mm -hmm. He also knows how far he is from her house. 
what it's going to take, how much he's going to have to slow down for her to get to him. He knows all of these things. He chose this day. He chose this moment. He chose this afternoon. All of that. He chose the point at which she's most desperate. He, none of this misses. This is not a by chance thing. He lands on the beach, says to Jairus, yep, take me to her. And Jairus takes off running and Jesus, in my book, ambles. And the crowd is growing and we just talked a minute ago about Malachi. We, the reason this woman is in the street is because she believes the word of God is more true than her circumstances. Amen. Because her circumstances after 12 years and being broke and nothing's happened but only gotten worse, her circumstances, her circumstances would dictate you are hopeless. You are without help. There is no healer, no nothing. You are going to die alone in a smelly stench. Mm. Nobody cares. And yet she believes that the son of righteousness will come with healing in his wings. And if she could just reach out and touch the hem of his garment, she would be healed because that is the promise to God to, from God to her out of scripture. So I love this picture of her. She, you know, I don't know what it took for her to get there, but she's got, she, I, and I tend to think, I don't know, scripture doesn't say this, but I think it was a, um, you know, like feminine bleeding type issue. I can't prove it, but I tend to think so. And so whatever it takes for her to soak that up and get to where she can, and then she begins following Jesus. She sees the crowd, the big fishermen, and she's losing sight of him. And yet something in her, some gumption, when I get to heaven, I want to hug her and I want to thank her for her heart and her courage and all the above. But something caused her to elbow her way through. And her response to the crowd was, I, I have to get to Jesus. I don't need to talk to none of that. If I can just touch. Mm. And she reaches out and it's, scripture says in that moment, she was healed from her infirmity. The moment she touches him. Mm. But Jesus is not finished with her. Jesus stops, says, who touched me? And at this point, she's like, oh no, I'm found out. Mm. And I think she probably tries to hide, pulls the hood up over her head, tries to back away. Jesus knows who she is. He's not fooled. Everybody's looking around saying, well, Lord, everybody's touching you. Who, you know, what? And he's like, no, wait a minute. Somebody touched me with intention. I felt power leave my body. Mm. And then all the disciples bow up and say, all right, who, you know, who stole power? You know, whatever. And she comes forward. And this is to me, to me, this is this is the probably for to me the most beautiful part. She knows she's healed physically. Her heart is not, which is also the reason Jesus makes the point of saying, "Who touched me?" Because he's not finished with her, not by a long shot. He's all for healing her body, absolutely. But it's her heart that he wants at. And we also know from the narrative she's a daughter of Abraham. So she comes forward and she explains. Here's my shame. And Jesus says the one word that heals everything. And he does it in everybody's presence. And in, in saying to her daughter, which is what he says to her. And in my book, Jesus kneels down and touches her chin and kind of lifts her up. So she's looking at him. He's not talking down to her. Mm. He's raising her up and he calls her daughter. And there in everybody's presence, he brings her back into the place that she could not be, which is in community. Because of her issues, she couldn't be near anybody, couldn't be with a man, couldn't touch a man, couldn't go in the temple, no forgiveness, none of that. She's outside. Jesus heals her, heals her heart, calls her daughter, brings her back in. That's the story. It's so good. I do have to say that 
it bothers me that Jay Roos, however you say his name, Jay Roos, Jay Roos, he has a name mm-hmm. and that she doesn't have a name. Like that really bothers me. Some may say that I'm a feminist, which I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I have a strong personality and I happen to be a woman also. Um, but it just really, I don't know why, it just, it really bothers me. Does it bother you that we don't know the jailer's name in Act 16? Yeah, I guess I just want everyone to have a name. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do have names. I, they do just have names. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so on the one hand, it's probably good, right? Because you are, you got a big bleeding heart for the down and out. It is pretty standard in the scriptures for the down and out's names not to be mm-hmm. mentioned, like... I mean, the four friends that carry the guy. We don't know Pete's name or the guy, the four corners guy's names. You know what I yeah. mean? Uh, the slave girl in Act 16, we don't know her name. We don't know the, the jailer, but we know Lydia. Yeah. So it's not like a male-female thing. It sure. really is like a status thing. And I, I, I think it's because of that. And so it, it, it matters that we, we know Jairus' name. Like, I think what the Gospels are doing here is saying, I want you to see all of the overlap yeah. between these two people. That's good. Like, you think you're a nobody. You think you're nameless. You think, or you think you're a somebody, and you think you've got it all together. If you'll notice how it starts, the somebody, the guy with all the power and the prestige and the title, he falls down on his face in front of Jesus. Why? Because there's no pain like kid pain, man. Yeah. So it goes... Like, as high and exalted as he is, he is humbled mm-hmm. to nothing. And as low as she begins, she is exalted to the level of daughter. Yeah. Yeah. It also, I mean, just even as you're talking, it's also to this picture that we don't know her name. She's cut off from society. She's outcasted. And then it, it makes the stark contrast of then calling her daughter right. so powerful of she has no name outcast to daughter of perfect Jesus. It kind of makes that, it hits that home so hard of that the only thing that really matters isn't our name. It's our identity as a son or a daughter. Yeah, and there's no, I mean, as great a storyteller as Charles is, there's no way words can describe what this personal experience for this woman is. I mean, you're a daughter. What does it feel like to you when your earthly father like looks at you, calls you by your name or daughter and says how proud he is or whatever? For sure. Right? Yeah. And so imagine not getting that one time ever for 12 years. And then the the son of God calls you daughter. I mean, it's, it's just... I think about it. I think about how, you know, like I try to bless my kids with my words. I think about what it means for me, you know, for my dad. I'm grown, man. I'll be 50 in a minute. And it's still, when my dad brags on me, man, I'm like, there's nothing like it. Imagine the heavens open up and Jesus, the son, has only known the lavish love of the father from eternity past Mm -hmm. to the moment he steps into time. And now for 30 years, he don't get it the same way. Mm. And then his dad says, behold, my son in whom I am well pleased. I mean, it's a thing, man. Now, by the way, 
her her faith has healed her, okay? But this is an incredible act. But the the verdict comes before the performance. Mm-hmm. Like she didn't have to she didn't earn daughterhood. Right. He just bestows it upon her because of her faith. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if we talked about it on a podcast episode or somewhere else just about to like the power of a father's words to their kids, how it's just different. So when she hears daughter, just the the healing that would have taken place, it's just in its own category. Uh, yeah, 100%. And, um, and even though, I mean, listen, man, she, you know, she's got a lot of wounds from the, like, religious community there, from the Yahweh followers, right? Um. But she's still called into community, and Jesus is the one that has the healing balm to yeah. to mend up all of those wounds and make mm-hmm. them right. You can add to me. I was just the one that was you were mentioned all the folks in Scripture not mentioned. The biggest one that gets me is in, when Abraham's looking for a bride yep. for Isaac. It says in Genesis twenty four that Abraham called his servant. He says, "I want you to go find a bride." So we get the whole story in Genesis twenty four, the entire thing looking for Rebecca. The servant is mentioned over 40 times, either by the name servant or him or my servant. He's never given a name. Mm. And yet without that servant, there is no book. There's no story. There's no redemption. There's no Jesus. The, I mean, literally he's like one link. Without him, there's no Isaac. Mm. There's, you know, so in my book, the, this servant becomes a type of the Holy Spirit who serves and helps and ushers and, and all of that, but he's never named. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I think we as folks, we want the accolades that come with whatever we do. I mean, we're from kids, you know, swinging a bat, you know, from whatever. We all want to stand on and get affirmed and I'm not immune to that. No, none of us are. But without... There are currently six people in this room other than the three of us pulling off this podcast. There are four there and two in that room. Mm -hmm. Without them, the unnamed six people, Landon, Aiden, Kaylee, Evan, Stephanie, and April. Did I get those right? Am I close? You're good. Don't ask me. This doesn't happen. (laughs) Don't ask me last names. Sorry. I know a couple of them. But they're not, they're just, they're, magnificently doing their job. Mm. The Lord's not somehow less pleased with them. or You know what I mean? That's how, how sick would that be? Yeah. So I, I do think you're right. I, I love the fact that we kind of don't know her name because what we do focus on is daughter. For, but for all of us that think, gee, I wish mm. somebody would at least know my name. Trust me, the Lord does. He slowed down. He chose this podcast yeah. for you to hear, to know that you're son or daughter of the king. Amen. That's so good. Um, Pastor Joe, you use uh, this illustration a lot when it comes to when the world tries to define us, that we almost have these handles on our body that the world is able to grab a hold of. And the more we walk with Jesus and become sanctified, the handles begin to fall off. Um, And so can you just talk a little bit about the world trying to define us by these labels and, and then what Jesus says about it. 
Yeah, it's getting exponentially worse in the past few years. It really is with uh, identity politics being the rule of the day and um, <laughs> and really some, some like sick demonic Marxist thought infiltrating all kind of elements of our society. And you, like you are not a son or a daughter, an image bearer of God. You are the category that you belong to. And that's how people want to label people so that you just deal with the categories and then and then create this thing about these power dynamics and imbalances, and that's who you are. So I don't care what you feel. I don't care what you think. Unless it's about sexual identity, then all I care is right. what you feel and think, regardless of the category that you were born into. So it's this crazy yeah. psycho world. I'm telling you, it's, it's worse now. Because when, the, when you can be just identified by your label, then people don't have to deal with you, man. Mm. And so... I mean, and, and you get some, you know, really sick and twisted things like critical race theory. That 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 that's who you are. You are identified by these things because with the, if the world has that handle, that it can grab, it can it can jerk you around to wherever it wants you to go. And the New Testament is, according to Romans five, there's two categories, man. You're a son of Adam, or you're a son of Christ. Mm. That that's fundamentally who you are. And when you're a son of Christ, by the sanctifying work of the word of God and the spirit of God, like a hammer and a chisel, just knocks all those handles off. And then you get to somebody like the apostle Paul, maybe the freest man who's ever lived, who says, amen, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I've learned the secret of being content in all situations. Well-fed, no problem. Starving, no problem. That that's the kind of freedom we're talking about. Am I am I now trying to win the applause of man or applause of God? That's mm-hmm. that's what freedom in Christ looks like. And you see it in this woman. She's like, all right, everybody in this crowd here is about to be ticked with me. Mm-hmm. I'm about to ruin everybody's weekend if this don't work, because nobody's going to be able yeah. to go to synagogue. Mm-hmm. Well, y'all don't define me. He defines me. And so then the reality is only he gets to tell you who you are. I mean, you should hear some of the things people identify themselves as. I'm a little more careful on Sunday morning for whatever reason that of the, some of the labels that I throw out there. So if you got kids in the car, we're just going to have a little bit of adult talk. I can't tell you the number of – I've been doing this for 30 years, man, and have people particularly involved in sexual sin – and say, I'm a whore, I'm a mm-hmm. slut. And you go, well, time out. Not if you're in Christ, right. you know? Or, <clears throat> I'm a murderer. I'm like, what are you talking about? Because of an abortion. Mm-hmm. I'm like, not if you are in Christ. Like, he, he calls you daughter, period. That you're not defined by the things that you have done in your life. Mm-hmm. It's not who you are. So, I know you have been divorced, but divorce does not define you. That's not what it is. I know that you have been abused. I'm not saying that's not a big deal. It's just not the biggest deal. Mm. The life-altering, eternity-changing, identity-marking thing is you is that Christ... Listen, you know who... If you, The person that gets to determine the name of a thing is the person that owns the thing. That's it, man. Wow. And so... You're not your own. You're bought at a price. And so he gets to name you. 
Even if you do something goofy, like name your car, you know how people do that? Yeah, I do know how people do that. You get to pick that name, not the <laughs> dealership. You know, that's how it happens. And so he he purchased you, and with that, purchased the right to tell you who you are. And he primarily identifies this woman as daughter, you as daughter, me as son. Um, so last night I spoke at our high school student ministry on identity. Good. And I stole some of the stuff from your book for my sermon content. It didn't give you credit, but now I'm giving you credit, so it's fine. Um, but you have a list in the chapter that says only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. And then you list like 15 things. You are not your past. You are not your sexual morality. You are not your whatever. You just list all these things. And so I took that list and I reframed it to apply to high school age students. And I read it out. And when I was done, this senior girl pulled me outside. She said it was her first time at students. She used to go to church all the time and was in a relationship with a boy that went south. And afterwards, she made a lot of choices with her body that she was really ashamed of. So she thought that she was disqualified from being a follower of Jesus. And when she sat in the sermon and she heard that she's still qualified to become a daughter, she realized, and she's crying telling me this, she just realized in that moment that she was letting the world convince her that she wasn't allowed to come back to church. And then sitting there, she's like, I know, like I was supposed to be here tonight. And it was so, it was just such a a moment. I And I told her, I said, I don't care if no one else got anything out of this. You were supposed to be here tonight to hear that. And I hope it changes the trajectory of your entire future, because if you can get that right now mm-hmm. as a senior in high school, if you can understand that you're the only identity that matters, that you're a daughter, then you, the world can come at you, but it can't because your foundation is in something so much stronger. So, and so we can learn from our past and we can learn from our mistakes and we can be super proud of our heritage and we can learn from past mistakes in our heritage. All those things are true. It's just not primarily who you are. Right. And what's crazy, man, I'm telling you, let's just talk about all the things. The crazy thing right now with all the transgenderism and the, the fluid gender theory and this kind of thing is that the most vulnerable people get hurt the worst. I mean, there's just a bell curve in how people react to these things. Teenage girls historically always have the hardest time with identity issues mm-hmm. and you... And you see it, man. You you see these these social epidemics happen primarily in young teenage girls because they hit puberty first, so they're dealing with maturity at, at levels way before boys. That there's a whole bunch wrapped up, especially in in today's culture, about fitting in and learning who you are. And when this world throws lies at you that you can't trust the maker for who you are, then you don't know who you are. This is why, I mean, people are just losing their minds, man. And it's almost like your foundation is so fragile. So you just are spending all of your efforts trying to hold it together as if you are the one that holds it together. And there's so much freedom. Like, I just can't imagine the freedom this woman feels when she's healed and then called daughter of like, wow, I don't have to try to just hold my life together anymore because it just wasn't working. And she's surely exhausted and she's been in waiting for 12 years. And now she just gets to experience this freedom of living outside of herself. Meanwhile, at the same time, there's a 12-year-old girl who is coming back to life. Mm. Yeah, what do we know about her? 
What's her, what? What is the story there? Is that all we know? That's basically it, <clears throat> except that her dad had all the power and means and money and popularity and fame, and none of that could do anything to help her. Mm. I mean, part of my take on the calling this lady the woman with the issue of blood, I think Jesus is like, there's going to be an issue with blood, but it's going to be mine, mm. and it's my blood that is going to heal you and heal her. Wow. Charles, anything you'd add? No, I wonder how long it took her to take the diaper off. Mm-hmm. You know, Trust I think she, yeah. I think, how long, I wonder how long it took her to take the clothesline down in her backyard, flapping with stuff drying. Wow. I think this woman probably lost her ever loving mind, mm-hmm. screaming at the top of her lungs, He called me daughter. Yeah. And she had every right to. And I, and I pray that she did. I hope she did. Um, yeah. I, I can't remember if I said this or not. Forgive me if I'm telling the story twice, but one of the ways this became massively apparent to me is several years ago I, w- I was speaking in prison because the this woman's this lady's prison had um, all, a lot of my books and they were reading them and stuff. So I, they asked me to come speak, and I said, "Okay, if I can come talk about Jesus." And they said, "Okay." So I go in, and Eddie Foy actually went with me. Eddie Foy is one of our worship mm-hmm. leaders, just massively talented, and. Uh, so I, we go in and we, Eddie does some awesome worship, leads us in some worship. And I start, I stand up and I start speaking about this lady. And I'm looking at the, the, the woman with the issue of blood. I start, I'm telling her story. And I'm looking across 125 women with blank stares on their faces. And I know I'm speaking words, but they're not hearing me. And I just stop talking. I said, and I just felt, I'm just looking at them. And all, the only thing I can see written on their faces are the names that they've been called. Because mm. this, this is a, there's a lot of security to get in here. Most all of these women are never leaving. Mm. Um, horrible things occurred. I'm not denying horrible things occurred, okay? But in the, in, the, in the process of horrible things happening, they were called horrible things. And so I just stopped talking and I said, There's a scripture says in Revelations, there's a river that flows from the throne of God. That means in order to get to him, we got to wade that river and it washes us. So I want us to pretend for just a minute that that river is washing through this room. And if you could, if Jesus could take from you the labels that you have been called, would you just speak them into that river? Mm. So just, I want you to say out loud the things people have called you. And I just stepped away. And for about the next 10 minutes, I heard the most horrible things I've ever heard. And as they spoke them, they would cry from their stomachs. Mm-hmm. And after about seven or eight minutes, I mean, I look at, I look at Eddie and his eyes are Oreos and mine are too. And I'm listening to these ladies, women say things. I would not, I, I don't know that I've thought some of these things about people. And they're pretty soon they're in groups just covered up, hugging. And a lot of them are tatted from, you know, what, and so there's just these huge groups of tattoos. And, and, in, and I saw a beautiful thing happen. I saw the Lord take these labels from them. And I, I, I just stood back up there. And as somebody would say something, I would just make eye contact with them. And I would just say, daughter. And daughter, and I must have said it a hundred times. Well, not a hundred, maybe 70, whatever. I don't know how many times. I just said it. And that went on for a while. And the Lord did some cool things there. And later when they would come up and ask me to sign their book, all of them were wearing their name tags. And mm-hmm. 
They, you know, it was, just, it was really cool. But they all would walk up and they would cover their name tag. They did not want me to see their name. And they said, we just, just make it out to daughter. And so this thing with identity that you're right, that girls deal with, and a lot of guys like me had said things to women like them. And it was a beautiful thing for the Lord to heal many deep places in them and for me to get to watch it. And the power of what he calls us being the most important thing. It's like who we are. I am who you say that I am, period. That's good. You have a quote in this chapter. It says, um, so typically when dirty touches clean, the clean gets dirty. But with Jesus, when dirty touches clean, the clean makes the dirty clean. And we see this with the woman. That's good. Somebody should write that down. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's true though, right? Yeah. So I want to talk about it and how that relates to us today too. Um, it's because the the blood of Christ washes you, cleanses you, redeems you, and makes you new. This is very different than a workspace righteousness that says you've got to do the working and the washing by your own good works, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it happens right here. Because what's going to happen ultimately and eternally is Christ is going to become the curse. The, this, this woman in this moment for 12 years has been cursed. Mm-hmm. Like The cells in her body are not doing what they were intended to do when God came up with the idea of a woman's body. And so she is under a curse. And so he becomes cursed on the tree. In his body is what 2 Peter 2.24 says. Uh that she would be healed. Mm. I mean, it's it's Second Corinthians five twenty one that he who knew no sin he becomes he becomes an issue of bleeding on the cross that she could be set free. The mm. same thing happens with us. It's a beautiful exchange. Mm. You talk toward in this part of the chapter. You take a moment to speak to people who have maybe felt like they've been in the position of this woman and gone to a church and been told you're not welcome here. And can you just encourage or just what would you say to those people who have been hurt by maybe other churches or church leaders before coming to 1122? <clears throat> Look, whatever church you go to, man, there, there are sinners there. It's full of sinners, including the people that run it and lead it. And people that poorly represent Jesus, just please don't. Please don't miss Jesus because of a poor representation of those who say they work for him, mm-hmm. okay? And then I'd also say that if you got hurt at a church, it wasn't the church that hurt you. It's not. I promise that maybe there's the rare exception, but it's not like leadership of a church gets together to connive to ruin somebody's life. But there are some individuals in places, and it and it hurts worse when the person – if there's a person whose role is supposed to be the shepherd, to love, to care for, to nurture, and that person is with either evil intent or carelessness, you know, when they cause pain. But what God wants more than anything is for you. I mean, he, he tells her two things. He's like, you're well, go in peace. That's what he wants for you. Mm. 
It's a little bit of play on words, man, because when he says you were well, it means like you were whole. Mm. So go in shalom, which means like right with God, put together the way you're supposed to be put together in right relationship with him. Mm. That that is God's intention for you. And you know what, man? There are seasons. So maybe you're at a church and, and that season is up, but but you don't give up on church. You've had a bad meal before. You didn't give up on eating. You've had a bad haircut. You didn't give up on haircuts. Like this is this is something that you you were wired for. You were wired for relationships, and they're so 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 needed. Mm. So, how do we see this woman's faith in action, and how can we be challenged to have faith like her? To, one of the things I like to talk about is. <clears throat> the opposite of faith isn't doubt. Because maybe there's part of it where it's like, man, I don't know if this is going to work or not. Mm-hmm. The opposite of faith is fear because fear paralyzes. And fear in this moment would keep her from like fighting through the crowd. Mm-hmm. Faith always produces action. Faith is acting as if you actually believe what his word says. Mm-hmm. So what are some areas in your life where you need to act as if you actually believe what it says? Mm-hmm. Because, man, we got a lot of folks in today's church, man, and they're practical atheists. Practical, I got a friend, and he's got just had surgery and didn't go good. And he's struggling, man. He's struggling with whether, with whether he could be healed or not. And I just lit into him. I'm like, what are you doing, man? Like, you're the first guy to point out where every preacher gets it wrong on some doctrinal issue. But right now, you're tapping out Mm. and he's like well either God's gonna heal me or he's not regardless what I do I'm like but that's not the narrative of the scriptures from cover to cover Mm. it's not how it goes yes God is sovereign and this woman has to have the faith to dig through the friends have to have the faith to dig the roof open you know what I mean it occasionally he blindsides a guy like the, but the, even the guy, the pool of Bethesda still got to take up his mat and walk. Yeah. If he just hears the word, but doesn't take up his mat and walk, he's still laying there. Even if his legs work, if you don't walk on them, what good is it? <laughs> you know, Yeah. if they don't roll the stone away, then Lazarus is just, he's going to die in however long you can live in a tomb. <laughs> so sometimes people's like theology can be the reason for their lack of th- faith. It's a crazy thing, isn't it? So, yeah, man, the sovereignty of God is not a reason for you to not do it. Mm. The sovereignty of God is the reason to do what the Word of God says to do. So good. Anything you'd add? Yeah, I'm hesitant to add it, but uh, I I will. (laughs) Speaking, I would not define myself as someone who is a very fearful person. I don't feel like that's my first emotion. I have known fear at various points in my life. But on on the whole, I don't navigate. I feel like the Lord's given me a beautiful measure of faith, and I I have walked from faith to faith in many ways. Okay, I'm, I'm not perfect, but fear is just not my knee-jerk. Lately, I've been wrestling with it kind of on a massive level. And so I'm 53. When I was about three we would go see my grandparents in Texas and we would see them in the wintertime when the ground's frozen. But I, they lived on a, I thought it was a farm. It was just like an acre, but they had a, they had a farm and a plow and they, he would walk behind it and he would plow. So I would get out there at three with the plow and I would plow frozen ground. And this was, so this seed was planted in me to have dirt, to have a farm. And for 50 years, 
I've wanted our own dirt, our own farm for Christy and I and the boys and for all the things, for fun, for memories, for relationships, for ministry, for I think all the right reasons. And here in the last year, we bought a piece of dirt. And I pretty quickly, when we get got to this dirt, starting from the first day, had two emotions that hit me like a freight train. One was fear, the second manifested in anger. Mm. And I blew up at my kids and I blew up at my wife. And I, in both cases, it struck, my own reaction even struck me. And I went to them both that night and, and I just confessed. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry. I know I am out of line. Mm. I had gone off and kind of gotten quiet with the Lord. He very quickly showed me the root. And the root was I was afraid. And I was afraid I wouldn't, I, and he noticed the problem with the pronouns. I was afraid that I could not keep what I had bought through all of my hard work. <laughs> and even in saying it, I'm like, Lord, I'm so sorry. But I, so I went to them and I just confessed to him. I said, you're right, I was a jerk. I want to let you know what's going on with dad or with your husband. I'm afraid. Mm. I'm, I'm afraid we can, you know, this is my life's hope, dream, whatever. And here I am standing on it. And the life of an artist is a weird thing. Mm. I don't get a paycheck every two weeks. I don't know. I know what scripture says without faith, it's impossible to please him and that we walk by faith and not by sight, but I'm fearful. Mm. And I just want you to know it. And so I began a process and every, over, over like the next six or eight weeks, as we would go there, I would drive through the gate and two things would hit me, fear and anger. And after about the third time of blowing up at either my kids or my wife, I was like, holy smokes, this is a real stronghold in me. Mm-hmm. The problem is I have an idol. My idol is this dirt. So I just went back to him and I just made it a point. I called the guys in my Bible study. I got Christy. I grabbed her hand. I went to the boys. I, I just began a, like a confession thing. I'm afraid for all the reasons I've told you. And I think really at the bottom, at the end of the day, I'm afraid Jesus is asleep in the boat. And he doesn't care. Mm. And the water's threatening to come over the gunnels. And it's my enemy whispering to me, And the Lord gave us the thing. He can take it away or he can keep letting us have it. I don't know. I'm not in charge of that. But I, now, today, when we drive to the farm, you can ask Christy. We will get about a mile from the gate and I'll grab Christy's hand and I will pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this place. I'm sorry that my reaction has been one to make it an idol and two to be afraid. So I'll take whatever you give us but I'm not going to walk on this thing being afraid for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. You take it, you keep, whatever, I don't know. But also, so I can I confess that before you and my, all of that. Here's my sin in this. But there's a second part to this, which I think is important. The enemy knows this about me. And so while I was experiencing this fear, the the, the enemy is taking this weakness in me, this lack of faith in me. And I was suffering what was a very real attack of a spirit of fear. And I could feel it. And the flip side of that is always with me. It's, it can be anger, not always, but it can be. 
And so I manifested anger because I was afraid. Mm. So I just began praying with Christy because we know Paul tells Timothy, the Lord did not give you a spirit of fear. We know fear can be a spirit. Mm -hmm. I would just drive in and I would say, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I bind, rebuke, and cast down any spirit of fear aimed at me or my family. And I bind, rebuke, and cast out anger. I don't receive either of those. Mm -hmm. I will take from you only what you want to give me. But it's not fear and anger. Since then, I've really enjoyed the farm. <laughs> so here's how this works, because so faith is first and foremost an admission I am not in control. I'm trusting that you're in control and you're good. That's faith. Mm. The lack of faith is I'm not in control. That leads to fear. And so then what is my reaction? Over control, mm. which especially from a dad and a dude looks like anger. Mm. Do what I said do. But it's really, see how these things are tied together? And so what do you do about it, man? You confess your sins to one another. You pray for one another that you be healed. So, I mean, this guy's a spiritual giant, so I'm not telling him anything. I'm just trying to unpack for people listening how this practically works. So when we can, the Protestant church has really thrown the baby out with the bathwater in, mm -hmm. in regard to confession. Now, we don't have to go to a priest to confess our sins because Jesus is a mediator. So the priest is not a mediator. You're, you're a priest. We're all, there's a priest of the believer, but confessing our sins to one another was the tool that God gave us that would give us healing, which would root us back in the fact that, you know what, you're right. I'm not in control. You're in control and you're good. Those two things are simultaneously true. So when I don't feel in control, it's okay because I'm just confessing. I'm, I, I've, I tried to over-control as a response to fear. And so, God, I'm just going to cast my cares upon you because you care for me. So the moment you started doing that stuff out loud and praying out loud, and then there's freedom there. Yeah. So as our closing question to close out this chapter, can you both just give some final words to someone who feels that they are in a desperate state like this woman? You better, there's, I'd give some warnings first and foremost. So uh, desperate people tend to be labeled really easily. Like, like when you're in a desperate situation, not like desperate for Jesus, but you find yourself like in a desperate situation. The Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. When you got a sick heart, it's hard to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and it's hard to love other people which then begins to lead to isolation. And isolation is one of the favorite tools of the enemy. The Bible says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That lion always picks off the isolated one. You weren't created to live in isolation, but the enemy begins to whisper lies that you deserve to be in isolation and you don't deserve to be a daughter in the family. I mean, this is why this word of God... I want you to love it so much. I want you to know it. I want you to memorize it. I want you to... So when the whispers come, you're like, that doesn't sound right. Because mm -hmm. I know what this thing says. And regardless of whether you feel it or not, he's good and he's in charge. Yeah. And you're like, hold on. But if he's good and he's in charge, then why did this happen? I'm just telling you, take yourself to the foot of the cross 2,000 years ago and be like, wait a minute. In that moment, you would think, God, you have you completely lost control? Mm -hmm. And he's like, actually, this was preordained before the foundation of time. This is the whole plan. 
Give it three days. It'll make so much sense. And so I would encourage you to root yourself in the Word of God and root yourself in God's community. That's good. Well, I love this lady, and I love her desperation, and the fact that she brings her desperation to Jesus, and she elbows her way through the crowd. And you may have to elbow your way through a crowd. But he is big enough to handle your desperation. He's big enough to hear, handle your screaming, your crying out, your cussing at the ceiling. He can handle all of that. He, he, trust me, he can handle all of that. So elbow your way through the crowd, but also too, we are very much in a war. The enemy wants to rip our heads off of our shoulders and eat us. And he wants to keep us from worshiping the king or believing him or trusting him or all of that. And one of the weapons or arrows in his quiver, which he also tends to light on fire, which it makes it even more poignant, is this whole thing with fear. And if you are both desperate and you find yourself fearful, and it's sometimes I think those things go hand in hand. Maybe one feeds the other. I don't know, but... I would approach, I would encourage you to approach it that you are at there whether you believe it or not you have an enemy who wants you to be very much afraid and you do through the blood of Jesus have the ability to speak to that enemy and say you may not have me you may not have my heart I'm a blood bought blood washed blood redeemed child of the king and you may not have me so get out and I wouldn't tell you to, I would encourage you to put on your big boy or big girl pants and tell them. Like, yeah. if you got to scream at it, then scream at it because there may very well be a deliverance coming. But if that is you and you are in Christ Jesus, then stand on the authority of the word of God and don't let anything else have you. Yeah. Only the spirit of God. Amen. Pastor Joby, will you close us in prayer? Let's pray. <clears throat> God, I thank you that your word says that we are beloved. That's Lord, I pray that, that that would be the label that sticks to us, that we would be loved by you. Mm-hmm. It says, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is love, not that we loved you, but you loved us and sent your son as the propitiation for our sins, which means, Jesus, you're the payment that satisfies. And so mm-hmm. God we realize that you cannot be dissatisfied in us because we are your beloved. I pray that we would live by that truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. (laughs) The end.